Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we finish our reading of the tale, The Seven Ravens, and discuss the difficulties that come with the work of recovering our lost wholeness. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. Life and spirit are two powers or necessities between which we are placed. Spirit gives meaning to our life, the possibility of its greatest development. But life is essential to spirit, since its truth is nothing if it cannot live. In the last episode, we began an exploration of the Grimm's fairy tale, The Seven Ravens. There I discussed the difficulty that we all face in harmonizing the two poles of our nature, the spiritual and the earthy. In the story, these two principles are represented by the raucous energy of seven suns on the one hand, and the domestic simplicity of a young daughter on the other. These two energies present us with something of a dilemma. The potential that the spirit represents can only be effective when that potential is made actual. And this, in turn, only happens through choice, through limitation through the sacrifice of some potentials for the sake of others. As Jung puts it, spirit gives meaning to our life, the possibility of its greatest development. But life is essential to spirit, since its truth is nothing if it cannot live. However, As we saw in the first part of our story, sometimes the process of directing our life into a stable and secure existence is achieved at the expense of our wholeness. We gain stability, but lose the spirit. In the symbolic language of the tale, the seven sons are cursed, turned into ravens, and fly away. But just as we cannot live in the chaos of infinite potential, so we cannot thrive in the monotony of a closed and changeless system of living cut off from the creative powers of the spirit. The first leads to a life of dissipation and distraction, 
Well, the second leads to an atrophy of the soul. And it was just at the point of this second danger that we left off the telling of our tale. There we saw that the sons, having been turned into ravens, fly off and carry away the liveliness of the spirit. The daughter remains and grows up alone, quite unaware that she had ever had brothers. Eventually, though, she learns of their fate and decides that she must be the one to go off in search of them and to redeem them. And now, let's return to our story and find out what happens next. So here, then, we begin the second half of the Seven Ravens. She had neither rest nor peace until she secretly set forth and went out into the wide world, hoping to find her brothers and to set them free, whatever it might cost. She took nothing with her but a little ring as a remembrance from her parents, a loaf of bread for hunger, a little jug of water for thirst, and a little chair for when she got tired. She walked on and on, far, far to the end of the world. She came to the sun, but it was too hot and terrible, and ate little children. She hurried away and ran to the moon, but it was much too cold and also frightening and wicked. And when it saw the child, it said, I smell, smell human flesh. Then she hurried away and came to the stars, and they were friendly and good to her, each one sitting on its own little chair. When the morning star arose, it gave her a chicken bone and said, Without that chicken bone, you cannot open the glass mountain, and your brothers are inside the glass mountain. The girl took the bone, wrapped it up well in a cloth, and went on her way again until she came to the glass mountain. The door was locked, and she started to take out the chicken bone, but when she opened up the cloth, it was empty. She had lost the gift of the good stars. What do we need when we set out to practice the symbolic life? As little as possible, apparently. When the young girl goes to find her brothers, we're told that she took nothing with her but a little ring as a remembrance from her parents, a loaf of bread for hunger, a little jug of water for thirst, and a little chair for when she got tired. That is, she takes with her the barest of necessities, as if it were an important condition of her quest to travel light. The image here is reminiscent of the ascetic practices common to the monastic life of many religious traditions. These practices can include things like fasting, abstinence in different forms, and poverty. 
Often when we think of such asceticism, we can get fixated on what appears to be an act of deprivation, the denial and discipline of our appetites. But the point is not so much deprivation as it is simplification. It's a redirecting of our psychological energies inward, attuning out of those things on which we normally focus so that we can tune in to the deeper dimensions of our experience. The Christian mystical tradition calls this the work of recollection, which in this sense doesn't have to do with remembering, but with the gathering in of one's psychic functions, the mind, the feelings and emotions, and the imagination. And it's when these faculties are pulled back from the sights, sounds, and distractions of everyday living that they become available to the subtler movements of the spirit, that dimension that, as Jung says, gives meaning to our life. And these preparations, it turns out, make it possible for our heroine to journey a great distance, far, far to the end of the world. She travels, in other words, to the limits of the known, that borderland between the field of consciousness and the wilderness of the unconscious. And in this place, she comes into contact with two great powers, the sun and the moon. And these, of course, are the energies that in the previous episode I called solar and lunar consciousness. The solar bringing the heat of intensity and passion, and the lunar cooling things down through reflection and attention to the practical. However, at this point in our story, they appear in their most extreme and dangerous forms. Both, we are told, exhibit a disturbing propensity for devouring human beings. And psychologically understood, this points to the difficult realization that while each of these powers have important life-giving qualities, either of them taken too far, unchecked and untempered by the other, threaten to swallow up, so to speak, that which makes us fully human. Passion and intensity, for instance, can tip over into things like aggression, competitiveness, and dominance, whereas reflection can become rumination, passivity and emotional paralysis. Either extreme represents a distorted relationship both to ourselves and to others. And as a result, we're cut off from the possibility of being able to express our authentic individuality in and for the world. And for Jung, the fullest realization of true individuality is found at the meeting ground of what he calls the universal conditions of existence, that is, our collective humanity, and the freedom of self-determination, 
the expression of our unique being. And this is just what the friendly stars in our story represent. The stars are an image of the union of the lunar and solar principles, the morning star in particular appearing as it does just before sunrise is a personification of the meeting point of day and night, sun and moon, a union of those opposing elements of our psychological life. And furthermore, the stars are all individuals, as can be seen by the fact that the young girl finds each one sitting on its own little chair. They are separate and yet together, independent and yet collective, beings of the heavens who are yet somehow also resting on the ground. And it is from these stars that the girl learns where her brothers are and how to get to them. She's told that they are inside a glass mountain, an image of being cut off and emotionally removed from life. And she's given a key that will enable her to reach them. And one of the ways that we often deal with disappointments, with discouragements, with lost hopes and unfulfilled dreams, is to tell ourselves that we didn't really want them in the first place. Right? Like the fox in Aesop's famous fable, we decide that the grapes we cannot reach are not worthy to be pursued. Better to lock our aspirations away, we conclude, than to feel the pain of regret. And so we suppress the experience of desire. We turn our back on our longings, calling them naive and unrealistic. We let the solar heat of passion be numbed by the cold rationalizations of the lunar mind until our soul becomes suspended in a kind of remote and fragile stasis, locked in its own glass mountain. And now we come to the moment when the girl is on the brink of recovering the spirit, of rescuing her brothers from their glass exile. But just as she is about to unlock the door, she discovers that somewhere along the way, she's lost the key. And so now we pick up the story from this point. What could she do now? She wanted to rescue her brothers, but she had no key to the glass mountain. The good little sister took a knife cut off one of her little fingers, put it into the door, and fortunately, the door opened. After she had gone inside, a little dwarf came up to her and said, My child, what are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers, the seven ravens, she replied. The dwarf said, The Lord ravens are not at home, but if you want to wait here until they return, step inside. 
Then the dwarf carried in the raven's dinner on seven little plates and in seven little cups. The sister ate a little bit from each plate and took a little sip from each cup. Into the last cup she dropped the ring that she had brought with her. Suddenly she heard a whirring and rushing sound in the air, and the dwarf said, The Lord Ravens are flying home now. They came, wanted to eat and drink, and looked for their plates and cups. Then one after the other of them said, Who has been eating from my plate? Who has been drinking from my cup? It was a human mouth. When the seventh one came to the bottom of his cup, the ring rolled toward him. Looking at it, he saw that it was a ring from their father and mother and said, God grant that our sister might be here, then we would be set free. The girl was listening from behind the door, and when she heard this wish, she came forth. Then the ravens were restored to their human forms again. They hugged and kissed one another and went home happily. What does the practice of the symbolic life need from us as we move deeper into its work? As much as possible, apparently. When she discovers that she has lost the chicken bone that was to act as the key to the glass mountain, the girl uses her own finger as a substitute. It's a profound image that is expressed so briefly and so matter-of-factly that it could almost slip by unnoticed, and yet it may in fact literally be the key to the whole story. Cutting off a finger is an image of many things. It's an image of sacrifice, first of all, which is the act of redirecting vital energies from a lower to a higher concern. But sacrifice is also an acknowledgement that the other side of growth and development is loss. The old the known, the comfortable, whether they are things we have loved or things we have suffered, must be let go if the new is to be able to find room to make its appearance. Related to the idea of sacrifice is what we might call self-giving. This is not so much a giving up of something as it is a giving over of oneself. The remoteness and emotional distance represented by the Raven brothers can only be redeemed by a full-bodied and full emotional investment of oneself, as imaged by the girl's sacrifice of her finger. As Jung states, the attainment of wholeness requires one to stake one's whole being. Nothing less will do. There can be no easier conditions, no substitutes, no compromises. In other words, we cannot be neutral in the practice of the symbolic life.
We cannot hang back and try to see how things are going to turn out first before we commit ourselves. We cannot hope to remain immune to the experience of living, untouched by life. We have to risk being affected by the world. If our inner work is going to bear fruit, it needs our lifeblood, so to speak, right from the very beginning. No half measures will do. And if this sounds extravagant, it's important to recognize that the stakes here are high. The spirit that we have denied entry into our lives, that aspect of our wholeness that has been lost or suppressed, does not just disappear. Important values that have been split off, says Jung, become like ravening beasts, like wolves or lions, or, I might add, like ravens. And what Jung is saying is that these neglected values can turn destructive. They become aspects of our own shadow that we then project onto others, fighting out in the world what we cannot reconcile within our own hearts. With its black color and its association with death, the figure of the raven is certainly an appropriate image for the shadow. But as we've already seen, hidden in the shadow is a spirit of the highest value. And perhaps that's why at this point in the story, the brothers are referred to as the Lord Ravens. Dark as they are, they possess something necessary for life. Indeed, in some mythological contexts, ravens are the companions of the god, such as Apollo in the Greek tradition, and Odin in the Norse, an association which suggests a connection to wisdom. The prophet Elijah, we read in the Bible, was fed by ravens, as was St. Paul of Thebes, the first Christian hermit who lived alone in a cave in the desert. According to legend, every day a raven brought him half a loaf of bread. Whether we speak of the recovery of the spirit, the taking up of the unlived life, or the acceptance of the shadow, the challenge is to integrate into our life what has been alienated from it. There is a nourishment available to us in the very thing that we once pushed away. As Jung writes, if the projected conflict is to be healed, it must return into the psyche of the individual, where it had its unconscious beginnings. One must celebrate a last supper with oneself, and eat one's own flesh, and drink one's own blood, which means that one must recognize and accept the other in oneself. And so it is that after she has been ushered into the Lord Raven's dining hall, the sister enacts a kind of extended communion ritual, eating a bite 
from each of her brother's plates and taking a sip from each of her brother's cups. And with this act, she integrates something of their energy into her own being. Again, it's a full-bodied investment of the self which frees the spirit and restores the lost wholeness, represented by the discovery of the ring. And this is exactly what Jung means by celebrating a last supper with oneself. Put another way, this means that we must find a way for the highest potentials of the spirit to be lived out in the concrete details of our life, for the inner life to be incorporated into the realities of the outer life. And so for our takeaway, we end where we began this episode, with Jung's understanding of the mutual reliance of this life on the spirit and of the spirit on the living of this life. As Abraham Joshua Heschel puts it, we must neither disparage the body nor sacrifice the spirit. The body is the discipline, the pattern, the law. The spirit is inner devotion, spontaneity, freedom. The body without the spirit is a corpse. The spirit without the body is a ghost. It's the fundamental premise of this podcast that meaning is essential to human life, right? Man cannot stand a meaningless life, Jung announces in the intro to every episode. At the same time, it's important not to forget, as Edward Edinger points out, Man cannot live by eternal verities alone. He also needs bread. Spirit and body, reflection and action, meaning and material existence, these are the essentials of our nature, our wholeness. And we live our fullest life when we make room for both. When we remember that truth, so simply and so beautifully expressed by the poet Mary Oliver when she writes, The farthest star and the mud at our feet are a family. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, 
please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good care.